All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Uh, so the drop-off went well. Uh, oldest kid is launched at uh, at Purdue University, and uh, we are back home uh, after a long, torturous drive. So uh, I wasn't able to uh, to put together or, or conduct a, uh, a new interview for the podcast this week. I had one scheduled, but frankly, uh, I caught a bug on the way back. And uh, just came home and didn't have it in me. So we'll uh, come back in full force next week. But I did want to uh, share a uh, an awesome replay with you that I'll talk about in a moment. But before we get into that, I wanted to let you know that today, Friday, this is uh, August 18th, is the final day you can register for Device Talks West under our early bird rate. I've talked about it a lot in uh, almost every podcast episode over the summer. Uh, you could save $300 off the price of $695. That's the full price. So it is a, a significant uh, discount, and it's going up to full price after today. So uh, I advise you, please, if, if you're going to attend Device Talks West, and I sincerely hope you are because it's going to be fantastic, uh, please register today and save yourself a boatload of money. You'll be able to uh, cover a hotel room, a nice dinner, a plane ticket, whatever you want with the 300. It's your money. You figure it out. We don't want it. We don't need it. Well, I mean, we could use it, but we want you to keep it. So register today for the early bird rate. But here's a little tip. Because you're a loyal Device Talks Weekly listener and a subscriber, I wanted to give you a couple of extra days. So I asked our great team to build a, a code just for this weekend. It expires on Sunday at midnight, Monday at midnight, whatever. This weekend, uh, use the code DTW, that stands for Device Talks Weekly, DTW395. That's DTW395. Plug that code in when you register full registration, and you will still get the early bird rate, but only through the end of this weekend. So uh, don't sleep on this, but I'm buying you a couple extra days because I really, 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 really want to see you there. So uh, if someone's not a podcast listener, let them know. It's up to you. This is your thing. You do whatever you want to do with it. So whatever you need to do to get to Device Talks West in Santa Clara, do it. We'd love to see you there. So uh, go to devicetalks.com. You can register for Device Talks West. And again, save 300 bucks by registering during the early bird rate. And that's going to expire today for the rest of the world. But for you, you special person, you get to save $300 through the weekend. But don't miss the opportunity, all right? Please, uh, I want to see you in Santa Clara. I'd love to see you in Santa Clara. It's going to be a great two days. So uh, please join us there. Go to devicetalks.com to register, to check out the agenda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, One of our keynotes at the conference is going to be Dave Rosen, the new president of Intuitive. So I thought it would be neat to uh, play one of our keynotes from last year, where I talked to Gary Guthart, the CEO of Intuitive. So uh, Gary Guthart and I talked on the morning of day two. Dave Rosen and I will be talking on the morning of day two. Uh, Dave's interview will actually be sort of a joint keynote involving our other events that'll be going out at the same time at the Santa Clara Convention Center uh, robotics event. So it should be a pretty jam-packed event. 
And uh, I'm eager to follow up on a lot of things with Dave Rosa, including the significance of his recent appointment to the title of president. But uh, I'm I'm giving you the opportunity to hear what Gary Guthard had to say last year. And both you and I can sort of build off that. And uh, we'll direct our questions to Dave based upon what was uh, what we talked about a bit, at least last year. Obviously, I'll have other questions for Dave as well. But so enjoy this episode with Gary Garthard. We, ro- we ran this as an Intuitive Talks podcast late last year, but uh, I'm bringing it back for you to uh, to whet your appetite, to let you know that uh, this is the, the kind of quality that we'll have at Device Talks West. I think our audio will be a bit better. And uh, would love to see you there again, October 18th and 19th. I haven't said this already, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, Going to be a great two days. If you uh, if you have any questions about the conference or concerns, email me on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, at Device Talks. And uh, that's it. No newsmakers this week. Uh, I'm going to uh, try to recover from the trip in the cold and uh, look forward to coming back in full force next week. So uh, thanks for listening and enjoy this interview with Gary Guthart, the CEO of Intuitive. I want this conversation to be sort of forward-looking, future-looking, and I'd love to understand, and you described it, the moment you used the Intuitive system for the first time at SRI, you had a vision, or at least you saw where this was going and, and what could this that this could be. Could you go back to that time and just kind of recount, if you would, the, the sensations, the feelings you were having when you when you kind of touched it for the first time? Yeah, so robotic assisted surgery um, predates intuitive, predates me. And uh, one of the early sites that was doing research, Stanford Research Institute, SRI International, was Phil Green and Ajit Shah, a guy named John Hill and Joel Jensen. They, they had built that vision there started in the late 80s. Um, By the time I joined, I was uh, an applied math type, so I was a technologist, physics undergrad, and an applied math graduate student, and I joined. And this was 93. They had a prototype working, and it was kind of an open surgery thing. Had two cameras and was not endoscopic at this time. It was an open surgery uh, telerobot. And they, they were interested in getting somebody to help with some of the math. That's where I came in. I got to sit down and try it. And they, they gave me a, a task to do manually. They, they gave me um, a, a couple of uh, Castro Viejos, a couple of these grips, and tiny suture, and, and very small, thin tubes to, to anastomose together, to suture together with a set of loops, handheld loops. And I, I'm a technology person, so I fooled around with stuff in my garage. I was constantly taking things apart and putting them together, so I felt like I had some assembly skill. And it was really hard, you know, with those loops. I could do it, but wow, is it hard. They said, okay, set that down, and come sit over here in this thing. And it, it, looked, it looked like it was right out of a, a sci-fi movie. You know, the wires hanging out of it. It was a prototype. The, the computer was a cabinet the size of the lectern. It was big. And, uh, but I just loved it. And they said, now try this. And it had tremor filtration. It had um, high dexterity instrumentation. Um, it had really good magnification, 3D magnification, 3D system. And this is, you know, 90, 93, and it was a good 3D system. Wow. And so sitting there doing it, it was like, well, this is a ton easier uh, to do. It was really impressive. And it was one of those moments where you sort of 
you know, a demo's worth a thousand words, and, and everybody in the audience knows that. I, I think you can talk and talk and talk, you can send people scientific abstracts, you can show PowerPoint slides, but if you can try it, it, it makes a difference. And I tried it, I, I stood up from that and went, wow, this is awesome. If, if this can work, mm -hmm. if we can really do that, then uh, it will change the face of what people do. And I went over to my boss at SRI at the time and, and said, can I transfer into that group? And I had a this guy named Raul Martinez. Raul said, all right, you know, finish up your work and I'll, I'll get you transferred into this other group. So he was a good boss and off I went. So it was fantastic. But if I recall, you needed some, some convincing to, to join into it proper to go to the corporate side. What was, the, what was holding you back? The, uh, uh, so uh, Intuitive was founded uh, by folks that I, I had not met. Um, there were three founders to Intuitive in, in late 1995. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fred Mall, a surgeon, Rob Young, a technologist, and John Freund on the financing side. They came over to SRI, I licensed the technology, and I met them as a young uh, engineer in my 20s. And uh, they invited me to join. Uh, Rob did. Rob called me up and said, why don't you come over? And, and I had just gotten a promotion uh, at SRI. I was kind of in the heart of my technical career. And I felt like I was going fine. And I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what to make of all of this stuff. I wasn't yeah, deeply immersed in Silicon Valley culture, mm -hmm. and it talked about things like stock options, and I didn't know what that was. I had to phone a friend. What do you? <laughs> what is this thing? Um, and so I said no. And the first first time I said no, and and they called back and said we should we think you ought to reconsider you know, the kinds of things you're doing. We think we we called it at Intuitive. We called it being a systems analyst, kind of a control systems engineer. We think we could use you. We think you'd be good. And uh, so I took a second meeting. I uh, talked to my wife, and she was like, hey, we're young. We had a one-year-old daughter. Um, now's the time to take a risk. Don't, don't. Early, bigger risk is, is better earlier. That was her advice. Mm -hmm. And I talked to uh, John Freund. He took me out to coffee. And he, the way he convinced me is he said, hey, the applied research market will always be there. There will always be a need for that. Why don't you see what it like, takes to actually translate the technology from the lab into actual use? Why don't you have that experience? If it goes great, great. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't go great, you'll be a more valuable applied researcher because you'll know what it takes to do the translation. And I was like, that's absolutely true. I yeah. should have had that thought. He's absolutely right. So uh, after that, I said yes. And, and wow, am I glad he called me back. Yeah, that no kidding. That well. I'm sure there's lessons about stock options help as well, too. Yeah, and they helped <laughs> I learned what stock options were. That's, that's true. That's great. Yeah. So let, let's talk about where we're going to sort of fast forward 20, hour, 20 years or so. To, to where we are today and, and look a little bit about the path that got you here. Give us a sense of Intuitive's reach today globally in the U.S. And how, how deeply have you penetrated the market for surgical robotics? You, you, you've been, the company's been here for a time. You would think that now you, you may have not reached a saturation point, but you would have at least, there would have been a deep penetration in the surgical robotics market. But I'm always shocked at how much larger the market is than the mark you have at the moment. Yeah, it's big, maybe maybe bigger than you think. Um, yeah. Kind of zooming out, in, in the United States, if you just ask, these numbers are approximate, so don't uh, don't get too attached, but at the, at the top level, if you ask, how many surgeries are there a year where you need general anesthesia? Just sort of start there. The, the numbers give or take 20, 21 million a year in the United States annually that are uh, general, general anesthesia. And then you say of that, there are a bunch of different segments, many of which we don't participate in. So uh, there's orthopedics, knees, hips, spine, there's cranial, there's eyes, eyes, laser eye surgery, other things. Um, we don't, 
we don't participate in those. So if you kind of narrow down to the ones we do participate in, there are about seven million a year, give or take. Um, and if you go through and you say, well, how many did you do last year? The United States, in globally intuitive, um, surgeons using our platform performed, I think, 1.3 million, give or take, mm -hmm. uh, last year um, on, a, on a base that's, that's, give or take, five, six, seven as a reasonable number that is accessible to the existing DaVinci platform. So relative to just what we think we can do with a DaVinci platform in global markets, maybe a quarter penetrated mm -hmm. on per procedure basis. That doesn't count things like flexible robotics, which is our ION platform. It doesn't count where we want to go with new indications that we're working on, additional ways to, to, to reach the body. So I think this idea of computer-assisted surgery is still really nascent. It's been around for 20 years. It's still nascent. And there are uh, plenty of companies. There are several companies doing work on robotic assistance in hips, knees, joints, shoulders, spine. Uh, there are others that are using similar concepts for uh, ablative techniques and ablative technologies. I'm sure we'll talk about that. So I, I, I think there's decades worth of additional opportunity. I think we're still what amounts to the early market. So let's talk about your, and I do want to get into ION, and you had some, you're very kind to schedule your analyst call the day before the meeting, so. We, we tried to arrange that, that for was, It was really awesome, thank you, it, it helps. Uh, so, you're, 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 I think the best case for a first mover into, into a space. I mean, you're, 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 as you mentioned, there have been others who have, have moved into surgical robotics, but it's interesting, whenever I interview any other surgical robotic company, your name comes up, not only specifically, but when they're trying to describe their product, because they say their product is, then they pause and they go, intuitive. It's like, eh, it's like they can't help but give you a plug. <laughs> so you're, you're, uh, you've been a move, first mover for a long time, but the competition, as you mentioned, is coming. How do you view, as someone who holds so much of that territory, do you view that as, as competition? Do you view that as, as some power that's going to, some tailwind that's going to push you along? What is your sort of view of the others who are coming into the space? Yeah. Uh, let me touch on one thing about first movers, and then I'll, I'll come around to how do we think about as the space becomes more uh, crowded. Um, there was a uh, FDA-cleared uh, surgical uh, telepresence system before us. It was the Zeus system from Computer Motion down in mm. Santa Barbara, and the, the founder and CEO, Yuen Wong, is actually has become over time a, a friend and colleague. Um, so the concept has been out there. We actually were not literally the first to have a cleared okay. product, uh, but but ours met customer need, and and the early concept of the Zeus was roboticizing laparoscopy. The idea was, hey, we're going to make laparoscopy and the whole user interface feeling of laparoscopy mechanized. We're gonna put robots in there and that'll help. And we had a different idea. So it was actually similar technology, but a different use case. Hmm. And in our world, our concept was, hey, we, we wanna to return to surgeons the feeling of open surgery and retain the benefits of minimally invasive surgery for uh, the patient. So it was actually gets to a point that will be interesting when we talk about competition is, Technology is out there available to anybody, and many of you are providers of that technology. So we all go shopping at the same place. We all have the same kind of basic ideas about where base technology is. But how you assemble it and what you try to do, what your goal set is, differs. Okay, that, uh, competition. I, I think in three broad categories, and they are always there. The, the first broad category is actually a at the patient-centric level. A patient is diagnosed with the disease, 
and starts the journey to understand what the treatment options are, of which surgery is one, often. Uh, surgery is often, in the case of many cancers, both the most effective and the lowest cost and the highest likelihood of, of cure. So surgery becomes a, big, a good option for, for a lot of people if things are caught early. So we're competing with immunotherapies. We're competing with external beam radiation, mm -hmm. you know, companies like Varian and Electa. Uh, we're competing with watchful waiting. We're competing with all sorts of other things that people can do. I actually think that is the most important form of clinical and economic competition. I'm going to come back to that. The second part is, hey, there are other people who have concepts and ideas in robotics that are similar to ours. And so they put out a system that has a little bit different configuration of the robots or it has a little bit different way it interacts with the surgeon, but essentially it's the same idea. That's kind of a head-to-head. -head. Mm -hmm. We have a pickup truck, they have a pickup truck. Who, who wants to buy which pickup truck? Okay, there's that kind of competition. I think that's what you're asking. There's a third kind, which is somebody who comes along and says, hey, I'm going to use a different architecture altogether. You're using these big robots, and they have these instruments that snap on, and I want to use a mechanized snake and go after it with a mechanized mm -hmm. snake. It's, it's three different things. Um, I care a lot about the first one, uh, that we want to make sure that we are competitive from the point of view of clinical outcomes for a patient undergoing disease. We feel like if we can invest there, which means how do we do about outcomes in surgery, how do we do with uh, changing the outcome bar, raising the bar? We, we think that is positioning us really well for the long term. We don't ignore the one in the middle, which is those companies that are saying, hey, I'm going to make an intuitive-like system, but I'm going to change this technical feature or that technical feature. We pay attention to that, mm -hmm. but I don't lose a ton of sleep over that. I, I think those are design choices. We have fantastic designers. So those are kind of easy to understand. And then the third category, uh, those are great opportunities for us uh, either to innovate ourselves, ION is such an example, or they're great collaboration partners. There are, there are opportunities that come up on new architectures we think are really interesting. That was a, a long answer. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the first group then, who, what are your objectives with that first group? Is it, it's merely, not merely, it, it, the intention is to make sure your, your devices perform best and, and perform those procedures with the best outcomes? You're just looking at it as a medical device company. I'll, I'll ask, can I ask the audience a question? Now? Sure. Just ask the question, how many, how many folks have had a surgery of some sort? You're willing to raise your hand, yeah. Any Da Vinci patients in the room? Uh, none. Um, the, uh, it's, if you look at prostate cancer surgery, so gland in the man in the, in the pelvis, uh, high frequency of cancer. If you choose to take it out uh, surgically, the positive surgical margin rate, meaning the, the likelihood that the surgeon, when they're dissecting it, leaves some cancer behind because they cut the cancer, that, that rate varies between 20 and 30%. So somewhere between one in five and, and one in three men will have residual cancer left behind. And it's because you can't see the cancer with your naked eye. But you can light it up. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've found working with academic partners, molecules that will bind to the cancer tissue. We attach a fluorophore to that molecule and then image it using fluorescence imaging. And the, as a result, the surgeon can see in real time, not ex post facto, hey, I left some cancer behind, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna continue the resection. It's real time pathology during the case. We think that will drop the positive, positive surgical margin rate significantly. You can ask, well, what's the negative consequence of positive surgical margin? Is it immediately cancer recurrence? The answer is not really. 
But what will happen is if you find additional cancer, you may have biochemical recurrence, you may have it come back, or you may have to go get adjuvant therapy, which means you get radiation in addition to surgery. Mm -hmm. So um, these things are hugely powerful. And you say, okay, but the people who are working on the radiation machines, and you know, God bless them, thank, thank goodness there are, there are radiation technologies out there, I think they're important, they're working on their advances. So what happens in radiation? If you have imprecise targeting, you wind up damaging healthy tissue, that healthy tissue can, can create nerve damage, it creates urinary incontinence, and, and fecal incontinence can create other things. Radiation starts to degrade over time. So if you radiate something, tends to be healthiest right after the radiation, and then over time those tissues will degrade, such that years later it's hard. Mm -hmm. So that is core treatment level competition. And we wanna make sure that we can do things that continue to be, to be innovative there and change the outcomes. And we're not chasing one or 2% complication rates. If, if I could share with you the clinical data on all these common conditions, you would be shocked at what the level of complication rates are. Not spe specific to da Vinci, but open surgery, laparoscopy, da Vinci surgery. So there's an enormous opportunity for core, serious value creation. Mm -hmm. So uh, our saying inside the company is, we really wanna innovate what's happening inside the tissue. We really wanna in innovate what's happening inside the body, because that is, is core value creation. We will attend to competition that is feature-based competition. We understand that that comes down to good design, and we will look for new opportunities and new platforms and partner them where we can. And just focusing on that first group, change your nature? Because again, it sounds like you're, you're a medical device company. You're, you're not a robotics company. You're, you're really looking at the, the, the points that touch the body more than the arms or, the, or whatever moves, moves the system. We, we are uh, experts in robotics, but we don't define ourselves as a robotics company. Hmm. Um, and I think you know, we're gonna talk a little later about what could this all look like 20 years from now, yeah. 30 years from now, and all these designations of what's robotic and what's medical device, all those lines will blur. They're blurring now. Interesting. In a sense, it doesn't matter. It's gonna be how do you assemble a really good technology ecosystem to get a good outcome, whether you call it a robot or not, but anyway. Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, let's talk about ION now, because you did have some great news last night in your analyst call, and maybe you can give us an update on, on the, the the units that you've been that you've moved, you had a strong quarter there, and I have to, we did a podcast with um, with Charlie Dean and Oliver Wagner about Ion, and it was one of those moments where just hearing them describe having a robot system that's small enough and that's nimble enough, nimble enough to get into the very distant edges of the lungs to 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 to, to both diagnose and potentially to treat. We'll get into that. It was one of those light bulb moments. You're like, oh my god, that makes. Yeah. All, it's, not, it's not helping a surgeon do something they're doing and helping them doing something better. You're actually blazing new territory. So I'm stealing your thunder, but tell us about your quarter uh, with ION because it was very strong. And tell us a bit about the ION program and where it's headed because it, it, your news did include something that I wasn't, I don't think I was aware of about mm -hmm. the ablation. Yeah, just two seconds on what, it, what is it. Um, uh, our ION product is uh, computer controlled, uh, robotic backend, robotically assisted. Uh, steerable, flexible catheter. The catheter is about a meter long. Uh, it has fiber optic sensing all the way through it, so we have something called shape sensing, which means that we, we know not only where the tip is, but we know where the inner, the, the body of the catheter is everywhere in between both, both sides. Uh, it has a through lumen in it. Um, we do a preoperative scan of the, of the chest. We get a 3D map of a patient's individual lungs, so we create Apple maps for that patient's lungs. 
Uh, and then we help the surgeon or interventional pulmonologist navigate that instrumented catheter uh, deep into the lungs to go sample tissue. Um, lung cancer, high incident rate, it's usually number two or number three in the country, depending on where you are. It's typically, lung cancer is typically the highest mortality rate of the cancers. So it's not always the highest incident, it is usually the highest mortality rate. Uh, finding those samples early, finding definitive diagnostic early matters. Most uh, early detected lesions are in the periphery of the lung. They're not near the main bronchial channel. That means is it's hard to go get the tissue. It's hard to figure out where it is. And there have been various technologies and approaches to get that. We do it uh, transorally. So you go through the mouth into the lungs, use this preoperative map, drive your catheter using your preoperative map, sample a, uh, a bit of that lung tissue, come back. That's what ION does mm -hmm. today. There's some hard technical issues there. There's some interesting uh, clinical workflow challenges, but anyway, we work through those things. Um, we started a, a prospective trial called the PRECISE trial. Interim data started to look really good on that. Um, later data, I think, was just published uh, this week at CHEST. At, at the CHEST, it was just announced. Um, the uh, final data on that looks as good as the interim data looked, and that's been, I think, underpinning um, nice uptick in the marketplace. So we're still in the early market. I think the total install base of ION systems in the United States is between 100 and 200. Um, that, that will be early. But utilization continues to increase, so they're using it a lot. And um, the uh, both uh, install base is growing and the procedures per system installed are growing. So mm -hmm. that's it's being quite productive. I think that uh, pulmonologists are finding it's doing what we had hoped for. Uh, it's competitive. There are other technologies in the market that are guided but manual. So they use a map, but they don't use a robot. There are other technologies that are out there that are both robotic and guided. And uh, so far, the performance of ours, its workflow, um, kind of the total ecosystem that surrounds that product has been strong, and that's driven our growth. So do you see that ION being a model of, of where you're headed, and will that become a, will these systems that are, are that are going after areas that DaVinci aren't, will that be a larger priority business, or in the future do you see DaVinci always being sort of the flagship product, and these others being part of the fleet? Um, time will tell. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think in the, in the near term, uh, opportunity for DaVinci multi-port uh, soft tissue surgery is quite strong, and as I said before, I think we're somewhere between a fifth and a, and a quarter penetrated in the opportunity we have. So there's clearly opportunity there. The flexible technologies, you can think about uh, navigating tubular structures in the body and being able to, to pick up uh, tissues to sense the tissues so you can have in, in onboard sensing, or you can drop off or intervene, interventional methods with those technologies, and that's the conversation about ablation, is, okay, if I can navigate somewhere with very high precision, if I can deliver packages and take them out, what is it that I can do for a, for a physician and a patient? Mm -hmm. And that opens real opportunity in the lung for sure, and that's our first application area, and we're quite focused on it. But it'll open opportunity in other tubular structures outside the lung as well. And I think over time that, that opportunity will grow. How is your relationship with, uh, with, with customers, with hospitals, with physicians, how is that changing? I think in the call yesterday you, you suggested that you saw some uh, some movement in, in workforce issues that the hospitals were having an easier time, but it's, it's a difficult time for the healthcare system overall. How are you working with them to help them see the value in what you're doing and what you're providing, 
and ensuring that they're able to get it. Yeah, one, one of the important things for us, and one of the things we've really focused on in the last six, seven years, has been uh, hospitals, particularly administrators, don't care about robots at all. That, that is not... They don't care or they don't like them? That, that's, well, a decade ago, I'd say they didn't like them. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that's where they are now. I actually think uh, they see the value in them now. But I, but I think it's a, it's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So start with the end in mind, right? What's the end? What are they looking for? They want to be able to treat their patient population with great outcomes. They want to attract, retain, and develop the best of the physician staff that they can. And they need to manage their cost per intervention. They've got to manage the economics, both the revenue side and the cost side of whatever interventions they provide. And so we start there. Um, so it, it isn't really a question of robot versus robot. It's can you deliver a full program or not? Can you demonstrate to them true value of that full program? So the program is something they define. It's their words, the quadruple aim. Better outcomes, better care team experience, better patient experience, lower, lower total costs per uh, episode of care. And we measure that. We've actually uh, built a program that allows us to do collaborative work with them and their, their electronic medical records to be able to demonstrate that value as it compares to open surgery or laparoscopy or robotics. And in that setting, I think they look at it quite positively because it's data-driven, and it's not data-driven on a white paper. It's data-driven based on their own data sets mm-hmm. and their own dashboards. So I think that's been a really strong um, supporter for total value around a robotics program. It's really changed the conversation. And I think as we look at complex dynamics like staffing, there are some hospitals that are in a really defensive position. Uh, There's been a nursing shortage or skilled nursing staffing shortage before the pandemic was exacerbated by retirements in the pandemic. Uh, If a hospital's in a really defensive position, they're having a hard time actually providing the first line care. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then they've got to solve that problem. Often they solve that problem by using uh, paying higher wages. So there's wage inflation, and that has helped them solve the first-line care problem, which is I can give you the procedure. But then they have a follow-on care problem after the procedure, and, and that is you, you have to care for patients in the rooms. You've got to follow them up. Uh, surgeons and doctors have to, have to round on that set of patients. High-quality minimally invasive surgery discharges patients sooner. They have fewer complications. They take fewer drugs they're less likely to have a serious issue, for example, in the ICU. Hmm. So if they can do the cases, it is highly efficacious for them to do high-quality MIS versus open surgery or or less predictable lab. And we're very strong for them in that regard. So that saves them downstream costs. It relieves downstream staffing pressures. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you can do the surgery, we save nursing expenses after the surgery. So how much more are you committing to to data? That was one, one area that I completely overlooked when I first started talking to your team. And I talked to a few folks about the, the data collection, gathering analysis that you're providing. How, how essential part of that, it's obviously an essential part of your business. Is it a growing part of your business? And is, is, it, is it one that's going to continue to grow? I, I think uh, for many of us, I, it's, it's an interesting guy. D- data has always been uh, a part of certainly any uh, automation robotics um, uh, telepresence system you're going to have both interest in data and access to it from the very beginning. So Mm -hmm. in some sense, we talk about intuitive as being born digital. You have to do it and track it. Uh, We have access to an opportunity to evaluate a lot of data now. If hospitals are willing to share electronic medical record data, we can connect, think of it as federated data, we can connect electronic medical record data with 
the, the data from the actual surgery to the follow-up data. It's anonymized, it's cyber secure, you need to take care of all those things. But you can start looking for, for patterns or for correlations between uh, patient preoperative condition, surgeon care team behaviors, and then outcome in the end. Uh, those things are crazy powerful, sure. su super powerful. So we're investing in that. We care about it. Um, we have many uh, data partnerships with our our customers to do that, and those efforts are bearing fruit. They're they're producing insights that are actionable by our customer base. Um, getting the economics right isn't always trivial. It's a little bit easier to say it than it is to do it, um, and we're working through that. But I I think it will be value creating for hospitals. I think it will be. Um, uh, value creating for intuitive over time, but it takes a little bit of effort and infrastructure to get in there. What, what might that effort look like? <coughs> is, is it something that you could pull out as a almost a consulting arm or something, or will the data you provide always be connected to what intuitive can and cannot deliver? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's, where we are today is we, we will provide, uh, we and we already do, provide a significant amount of data insight for any of our customers without additional charge. Mm -hmm. So uh, just by working with us, we will, we will help them see the basics of their programs. There are some things that we can do that either allow them to do additional research of which they are interested because they have a research mission or can uh, generate additional follow-on benefits for them, in which case we'll uh, charge them uh, a consulting fee or other fee for it. In general, uh, those things are relatively small. A lot of the, the core value is just built into the platform. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I almost hesitated not to ask this, but I'll ask about supply chain disruptions. How, how has supply chain hit you? Has it impeded your production at all? Has it kept you from shipping? Uh, how many folks in the room are supply chain related one way or another? Yeah, the way we talk about it is it is a uh, Western bar fight yeah. that goes on d day after day without end. <laughs> um, it's hard. Uh, it has not been trivial. I, I, if somebody else in the audience has a better description, I'll hear it. I'm, I'm open to it. But I would say, you know, a, a typical DaVinci system has about 10,000 components. Wow. Single device, 10,000 components. And of those, they're everything from things straight out of somebody's catalog, it's a pretty standard device, all the way up to custom machined or molded parts that are sourced from a lot of places in the world, some of whom may be in the room. And uh, so you see challenges in the things you read about, semiconductor manufacturing and semiconductors. You see challenges in raw material supply, plastics, and, and some of the other things that you need. The team, our team had done a nice job early on uh, building safety stocks ahead of a problem. So, you know, the best time to plant a fruit tree was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Some of our folks had planted quite ahead of time. That gave us a little bit of time and flexibility, so I'm thankful to our operations leadership who had anticipated. Having said that, that only lasts you so long, and then you have to respond, and we have been responding um, every single day to uh, shortages. And one way to do it is, is to call through and see if you can find shortages in, this, in the supply chain somewhere. Another way to do it is to switch to uh, parts that are available from parts that are not and qualify new parts. Um, uh, it, it, those are kind of your big choices. The other one is that you're, you're, you have substitutes available on hand that you've already pre-qualified. And we wind up doing all, all three. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, from our perspective, uh, the, the breadth of, of raw materials and components that are challenged has started to narrow. But it's not zero, and it's certainly not back to pre-pandemic levels. So it's the, 
the peak is behind us, but it's not something that we'd say is finished and we're and we're done. And in our in our safety stocks are not all the way back up to full to full level. We're starting to rebuild them. How does your supplier list look today compared to 2019? Did you go? I've seen two strategies. We'll we'll add ten more to each product, or we're only going to two or three, and these are our our folks, and we're going to give them the business they need, and they're on they're on call. Yeah, for for it, you know we were interesting. Intuitive is really kind of three businesses under one umbrella. There's a robotics business, which is um, in the world of manufacturing, low volume, very high precision. Uh, there, you, you want to be careful about spreading uh, into a million suppliers. Mm-hmm. We, we'd rather work very closely with suppliers who understand our needs and, and invest alongside them. Um, you'll, you'll never get to huge volumes that will make you a big player relative to somebody who's making cell phones. Gotcha. And you're much better off being close. We, we have a instrumentation and accessories business, the things that are in, used in every case that are much more high volume more plastics, and those those are built at millions, uh, millions a year. In those things, uh, you want to work with companies that have the volume and scale that can flex with you. Again, I don't think you want to spread it across the, the universe. And then there's what what I think of as commodity supply things that are catalog based. In there, you'd use the different strategies. It's not really a one size fits all. Interesting. Okay, we got about five minutes. I I, I would love to get your. We, we started this conversation about your, your, your experience 30 years ago, I guess. I was going to say 20 years ago, but let's, let's shorten the time to 20 years ago. We're at a point today where, at Mass Device and MDO, we're, we're writing about all different robotics companies. There's more than we can literally keep track of. And so, as we do our list of everything you need to know, we, need, we find out there's more we need to know about, about the robotic startups. So uh, I don't know where this ultimately ends up. They're certainly not all competing technologies with each other or certainly with you. But what is what does this digital surgery or robotic surgery system look like 20 years from now? Uh, is it is it all these different components owned by two or three entities? Is it what does the surgical suite look like? How are you looking at at the future when you're CEO 20 years from now? Yeah, well z- z- zoom out maybe a little bit. I I think I don't think we'll be talking about robotic-assisted surgery or robotic-assisted intervention as something different than products. It won't be a subcategory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it, it just will It will be. I, it, there won't be a, a subsection of a group. It, this is the way things are done. I, I think you think about advanced imaging, cloud computing, uh, uh, mechatronic assistance, and in the workflows and human factors engineering that goes into that, I think it'll be built into to healthcare period. I, it will be so ubiquitous, it will not be commented mm-hmm. upon. And when you're talking about device talks, it will be the rare one that does not have an intelligence component to it, not, not the other way. So I think that trend is already well underway and it's inexorable. Um, and as a result, I think there'll be a vibrant ecosystem of uh, entrepreneurs and small companies and large companies and consolidators who are working within that space and I think you're seeing the big consolidators realize that and pivot to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just reminds me a lot of electrification in automobiles. There's a point at which it's not an electric car, it's just a car. And it's a propulsion system in a car, and that's what people are doing. And I think we're not so far from that. I think the same will happen in our space. As too intuitive in what that looks like, um, I, I don't walk around thinking about us as a robotics company, but I think is... We have a really good organization that can identify 
less than optimal clinical outcomes. We have a clinical team and they work closely with our customers to say, where, where the outcome's just not very good. And then we have a bunch of designers, engineers, architects who can go through and say, how do we build a technology-enabled ecosystem that can substantially change that set of outcomes? Um, notice there's nothing in there that says robot. It's just a set of technologies. And then we have an organization that I think that can realize that through manufacturing and deploy it in the field through commercial and training resources. Um, and in the end, we, we try to support that with the data analytics and cloud architecture. That, that is our internal concept, our architectural concept for the company. Mm -hmm. I think it's a durable concept. And, um, and as things like molecules come online, can we integrate them? So if you think of us as hardware plus optics plus software plus electronics, we started to add molecules, which is kind of wetware. Um, but it flows well in that total that total concept of a technology-enabled ecosystem that can deliver an outcome. So it's not, it's not hard for us to get our heads around. Uh, I think several companies will start to build that, that throughput, that idea. By adding molecules, you mean adding? Uh, well, for example, contrast agents that can be used oh, okay. during surgery. That's, gotcha. that's what I meant on gotcha. molecules. Okay. Sorry about that. No, no. That's, I wasn't sure if that's where you're going. <laughs> but, so wrapping up, but just last question. We, we do see a whole, as I mentioned, a group of startups out there. Do those, most of those go away? Do there other technologies absorbed? What do you see happening to this, just this crowd of, of surgical robotics startups? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think, I'll just speak to the past as predictive or the future. Um, it can be done. There, there are, if you went back, if we were sitting here 20 years ago, there are about, um, between now, between then and now, about 25 commercial groups that had made serious attempts to deliver their, their robot systems to the market. Mm -hmm. Of those 25, five are in the market existing today, re remain. And, and 20 were either absorbed or assets were sold or whatever. Um, so I think it's in, intuitive is one of the five that's standing, but there are several others. There's now 150 or 200 that are looking at robotic platforms of one sort or another. And you know the odds ratio is probably about the same. Yeah. Um, you can do it. It's hard to be to be there and freestanding, but that's set of odds is probably not so different from uh, tech startup or you know, next generation uh, semiconductor chip or whatever. So it's it's doable, but it's not trivial. Fantastic, great. Well, thank you so much for the time and the thoughts. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that replay of my interview with Gary Guthart of Intuitive. And I really, really hope you'll join us at Device Talks West. We've got a lot of great other keynotes other than Dave Rosa of Intuitive. We'll be speaking with Fred Kasravi of Imperative Care. We'll be talking with Julie Tyler of Abbott, head of Abbott's vascular program. And if you like surgical robotics, we'll end the event with uh, a keynote interview I'll do with Hani Abuhala. He's a company group chairman of robotics and digital surgery at Johnson & Johnson MedTech. We'll have lots of other great surgical companies there as well, robotic surgical companies, surgical companies, vascular companies, neuromodulation companies, uh, diabetes companies. We'll be covering uh, a whole range of MedTech companies and you should just be there. So make sure you uh, attend and make sure you use the special code. If you don't get it done, if you don't register by the end of the day today, over the weekend, you can use the code DTW395 and you'll get that early bird rate, that $300 rate 
savings, rather $300 savings uh, through the weekend, but then it expires on Monday and that's it. I can't help you. I'll, I'll have nothing, nothing for you. So uh, please join us. Device Talks West, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. 